It is awesome to be together this morning. If you're visiting, our name, of course, is Tri-County Bible Church. That one little word, Bible, indicates something that is just critical about our DNA as a congregation. What is so critical and critically communicated in that one word is that we believe that the Bible is God's word. We believe that studying God's word is actually critical to us having eternal life and to us being able to experience life change. It's not in anything I say. It's whether or not I accurately represent what God has said here. So some of you may have gone to church quite a bit, and uh, this, what we experience right now, may be a little different. Hopefully not. Uh, But I am told often that what goes on at Tri-County is sadly unique. Sometimes people visit churches a lot, and they say, what's going on here is just different, and here's what's different about it, what I think people are trying to communicate, and I try to share this with them. My goal this morning has nothing to do with inspiring you. I'm not trying to make you go out of here feeling good. I'm not a motivational speaker. I am trying to accurately communicate what God has said. You could go out of here feeling great, And if you wouldn't have experienced what God has said, it's pointless. It's empty. Feeling good has no ground to it. You might go out of here hearing what God has said, feeling miserable, and it's the best thing for you. Like some of those times when as a little boy I had to face my parents and they said, Joe, you got to deal with some things. And I went out feeling miserable. And it was healthy because it restored my relationship with my parents. The whole point that we have at Tri-County is to communicate what God has said because in what God says there is life and there is the possibility of permanent life change. So let's now turn in the scriptures to John chapter 20. It's going to take me just a little bit to get there. Resurrection Sunday is, of course, the Sunday after Jewish Passover, on which we remember what happened 1991 years ago when Jesus, after being crucified for our sins, rose again. He walked out of the tomb alive. Of course, this is not just why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. It's why the church gathers for worship every Sunday on the first day of the week. Because on the first day of the week, Jesus walked out of the tomb alive. And we start our weeks as Christians with this reminder that no matter how bad life gets, Jesus walked out of the tomb and we can rejoice in him who holds the, as our first song of the morning said, he holds the keys of death and hell. He is the one who can release us from our bondage to sin, death, and our condemnation to hell. We remember that every Sunday. Now, I think... You know this, but many, many people doubt the resurrection. But no evidence has ever been marshaled to disprove it. No evidence has ever been marshaled to disprove the resurrection. Now you might say, aha, but there is science. (laughs) We know that people don't rise from the dead. And every Christian in this room would totally agree with you that scientifically, 
people don't rise from the dead. That is impossible unless there's a God who spoke the world into existence. And the world, as I see it, gives powerful evidence amid all its brokenness, gives powerful, conclusive evidence that it is designed. Complex systems don't evolve stage by stage. It's been pointed out that even the human knee joint, some of you have had troubles with yours over the years. There are 16 parts that have to be working all at once for that knee to be functioning properly. You don't evolve a knee one by one. A knee gives evidence of engineering. It's designed. We all acknowledge that it's impossible for a dead man to raise to life unless there's a God who speaks life into existence. Now, going back to my statement, there is no evidence that has been marshaled to disprove the resurrection. In fact, on the positive side, there is much evidence to prove it, to show that it is trustworthy, not the least of which is the empty tomb. There was a tomb without the body of Jesus in it. And the body of Jesus has never, it was never and has never been put on display. There was an empty tomb. It is a fact of history that must be explained rationally. The second piece of evidence that powerfully speaks to the trustworthiness of the Bible's testimony is the conviction that hundreds of people in the first century who claimed to see Jesus alive staked their lives on such a claim. They didn't just claim to see him as a ghost or maybe in a vision, like in a dream. No, they claimed to see him walking, eating, breathing. They ate with him. They touched him and they hugged his feet. And these people, many of them, went on to not only spread the conviction that they had seen Jesus alive, but they died for this conviction. A mathematician named Blaise Pascal in the uh, 1600s said very famously, the hypothesis that the apostles were knaves or dishonest liars is quite absurd. He says, follow that thinking out to the end and imagine that these men, after Jesus' death, conspired together to say that he had risen from the dead. He says, this would mean that they had to attack all the political powers that be. He said, trace that out even further. The human heart is singularly susceptible to fickleness, to change, to promises, to bribes. One of them had only to deny his story under these inducements. One had to be offered a bribe, for example. Or still because of probable imprisonment and torture and death, they would have all been lost. He says, follow that out. Does that really make sense that they made up a lie and then they lost their lives and not one of them caved in to the temptation of bribery or they caved to the persecution of imprisonment? He says, follow that out. He concludes very positively. Last statement that's on the screen now. 
I only believe histories whose witnesses are ready to be put to death. At the heart of the Bible are four newspapers. They're called accounts of the gospel. The term gospel means good news or news that is really good. These are newspapers, right? There is the news that's really good, according to John, and the news that's really good, according to Mark, and the news that's really good, according to Matthew and according to Luke. We began at the end of 2020 studying the news that's really good, according to John. And after a two-month break, we're now going to dive back into it. But rather than diving back into it at the end of chapter 4 where we left off, because of Resurrection Sunday, I actually want to dive into it in chapter 20, which is so appropriate for the day. This is the news that's really good, according to John. It's his report of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Please follow along as I read John chapter 20. The account picks up on the third day after Jesus' crucifixion. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's the author's reference to himself. And she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. It may be because John was a decade or so younger than him. And he reached the tomb first and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Now, The linen cloths are going to be repeated here in the next few verses a couple times. The importance of the linen cloths is that they prove that grave robbers, which were very common in that day, did not steal the body. If the body was stolen by grave robbers, they wouldn't have taken the time to take off the linen cloths and fold them. Even more, linen was a very valuable commodity in the day. They would have taken them and sold them at profit. That would have been the whole point of the robbery, to get whatever you could off the body to sell. Then Simon Peter came, verse 6, following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place all by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he also went in, he saw and believed. For as yet, they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That's an incredible admission that I think accents the trustworthiness of the account. He's admitting how stupid they were. The disciples did not have any expectation of an individual rising from the dead. In fact, the Jewish concept was that there would be one resurrection at the end of history of all people, the righteous, to eternal life, and the wicked, those who had not committed their lives to God, to destruction, as Daniel 12 indicates. They had this concept of one mass end times resurrection. They had no concept of a single individual rising from the dead, despite all the times Jesus told them he would rise. 
So they're confused as to what's going on, but John says he must be alive. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. It's remarkable that these angels announce this to the women rather than to the men. God sends them to appear to the women rather than the men because in the first century, many of you know this truth, but in the first century, the culture, the Roman culture was so chauvinistic that women's testimony was not even admissible in court. But the angel appears and makes this announcement to the women. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing outside the tomb, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. This similar thing happens on other occasions, where people see the risen Christ, and they don't yet recognize him. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Note this phrase, supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I will ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. That statement beautifully shows that Jesus' death and resurrection opened the door for anyone who commits his or her life to Jesus to not only be reconciled to God, but to belong to God as his child, the closest family relationship. Mary Magdalene, verse 18, went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. That is a fact. If you withhold forgiveness from any, then you are acknowledging the contrary fact that forgiveness is withheld. He's telling them that very soon, less than seven weeks till the day of Pentecost, they are going to experience the outpouring of the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, and the Spirit of Jesus is going to equip them to advance the church. And the church's most solemn responsibility, let me tell you what Tri-County Bible Church's most solemn responsibility is. It is acknowledging in membership or exclusion from membership that we believe that you are either right with God or you are still in your sins. That is the job, the sober job of a church. Many churches do that job very irresponsibly. Many churches do that falsely. We try to do that humbly we acknowledge that we are not god but we have god's word and we try to do that carefully and personally but we try to do it responsibly that is what a church is called to do 
if you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, you've committed your life to him, the church can rightly say you stand in the state of forgiveness. And if you are not living in submission to Jesus as your king, the church responsibly must say you are not forgiven as best as we can tell. That is sobering. And Jesus tells his disciples here on resurrection night, that is the power I'm going to entrust the church with, and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to help you carry out those responsibilities. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, we've seen the Lord. The other disciples, plural, told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I think many of us can relate to Thomas's doubt and his desire for hard evidence here. But Thomas is not here portrayed as a hero, a skeptical hero who says, I only believe if I see with my own eyes proof. No. He should have heard the consistent testimony of at least a dozen of his friends, men and women. And he should have believed based on their eyewitness testimony. Even though he doubts, Jesus gives him proof. Eight days later, that's a Jewish way of counting one week. It's including day one, you go eight days, this occurs the following Sunday, Jesus In verse 26, as his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked, he came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he went to Thomas and he said, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This moment is actually captured in one of my favorite paintings of all time. It's the incredulity of St. Thomas by the Baroque painter Caravaggio. It displays incredible lighting contrast in the painting. At that moment, Thomas answered him in humble worship. Verse 28. My Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, or you might have life on the basis of his power and authority to give it. John's main point in this chapter is really the climax of the entire book. And this is what God wants each of us to understand today. You are forever blessed if, even though you have never personally seen Jesus alive after his crucifixion, you commit your life to him as your Lord and God. You will be forever blessed if even though you've never personally witnessed Jesus' resurrection, you commit your life to Jesus as your Lord and God. 
want to state that in a little bit more detail. John says, these are written. What he has written, verse 31, he says, these are written so that without seeing for yourself, you will be convinced of who Jesus is, that he is God the Son become man, and that he is God's chosen king for this planet. That's what it means to be the Son of God. That title means he is God the Son become man, and he is God's chosen human king for this planet. If you will believe that Jesus is the Son of God, crucified, risen, coming again, and you will not only believe that as a fact, but you will submit your life to Jesus as the only way to be forgiven of your selfish rebellion and to be given eternal, resurrected life in his eternal kingdom. That is actually what it means to be human. That is what life was designed to be, to live forever in the presence of God. Jesus can make life, make your life what it should be forever. Incredible. Now, to commit your life to Jesus as Lord and God, there are a couple prerequisites. Two, in fact, I see two major ones in this chapter. And the first is this. To commit your life to Jesus as your Lord and God, the first 29 verses say, you must trust the testimony of the eyewitnesses. This is not blind faith. This is faith that's based on evidence. You must first trust the testimony of those who saw him alive. There are four testimonies in this chapter, and it's like four people taking the witness stand and testifying to their experience. We should, as it were, sit as a jury and hear the testimonies and draw a conclusion. That's what happens all the time in our court of law. Doesn't always happen perfectly, but many, many, many times. There is just so much evidence that you say, I can draw a conclusion. Here are four witnesses, four eyewitnesses who did see what happened. Listen to their testimony. And it's not like they just say, yeah, I saw him alive. What's described here, the way John describes it, is they're testifying to not only that they saw something, but that it changed their lives. There are four of them. The first one is this. John testifies that it turned him from ignorance to faith. This is the author himself. You see Peter and John running to the tomb. They're absolutely ignorant and clueless as to what's going on. They only know what Mary has said. The tomb's empty. And they probably presume at this point that someone stole the body. That was, like I said, a pretty common criminal activity. But John, the author, describes this in verse 8. He says, I saw the linen cloths, and I saw the face cloth that was folded on that burial slab. And he says, I believed. He uses the word believed. It's going to be the climactic term in chapter 20, verse 31. It turned him from, what has happened? Ignorance. To, Jesus must be alive. Belief. Secondly, it turned Mary from grief to joy. Turned Mary from grief to joy. Verse 11 indicates that Mary approached the tomb with tears. She was weeping. The fact is 
emphasized again in verse 13, you see the word weeping, and in verse 15, she's asked again, why are you weeping? Mary explains, here's why I'm weeping. Because someone has taken the body. Again, she thinks that it must be a grave robber. Now, the reason Mary's weeping over this fact is because she is Mary Magdalene. Hold your finger here, and if you can, flip to the previous news report. Luke. Jump to Luke chapter 8 with me, if you will. Luke chapter 8, and look at verse 2. Keep a finger here in John. We're told here in Luke 8, too, that several women were following Jesus. Some of them had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, I mean sicknesses. And the first one in the list is Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And then he goes on and lists others. Hmm. Jesus had cast seven demons out of this woman. It's very probable that Mary, before meeting Jesus, had been a woman of the streets. She was loose. She was addicted. She was hopeless. There's even a point she came to be possessed. When she met Jesus, he changed her life. He valued her as a person. He promised her forgiveness of sins. He promised her that if she would follow him, he would grant her eternal life in his kingdom. This woman of the street, Mary. This gives you a little window into her tears. The reason she was crying is because this man was her hope. She doesn't realize it, but the second time she's asked, why are you weeping, she's actually talking with her hope. According to verse 15, this is incredible. You can flip back to John 20 and look at verse 15. I tried to highlight it when I was reading it. Mary Magdalene assumed that the one talking to her was the gardener or the caretaker of the property. That's an awesome comment. Mary assumed he was the gardener. If you can imagine John, old John, as he's recounting this news report, you can just imagine a smile on his face as he reflects on that detail. She thought he was the gardener. Do you remember that John's gospel is full of allusions to creation? Adam was the first gardener. He was the caretaker of the garden. And he rebelled against God and plunged all of creation under the curse of death. And John hears Mary say, I didn't know who he was. I thought he was the gardener. And John chews on that for years and says, Oh, he was the gardener. Mary was looking at the gardener. Mary was looking right at him, not the Adam 
that rebelled and plunged all of creation into death, but she was looking at the better Adam. She was looking at the true gardener who has the power to remake the creation that Adam broke. She supposed he was the gardener. And she's taken from grief to joy. She's filled again with hope because of Jesus. Third, seeing the resurrected Jesus turned nine other disciples from fear to boldness. I say nine others because even though there were 12, you remember Judas, one of the 12, hanged himself after betraying Jesus. He was the traitor. Also, John has already believed, according to verse 9, and we're going to see in the next paragraph that Thomas wasn't there, so it's 12 minus 3. Nine of them. Now, let me just take a little break and say, there are a lot of questions that this passage raises that I can't address all in one message. I wish I could. You might have questions about the nature of angels or the nature of demon possession. You may have questions about how this account complements and harmonizes with the other accounts. Great questions. You may even have questions about the nature of a resurrected body. These are all questions that I wanted to address in the message, and I just said there's too much here. I can't. If you have questions about those in days ahead, seek for answers. Explore answers. I would welcome the opportunity to discuss those things with you. They are questions that I've wrestled with over many years, and I would encourage you to do so, and I would invite you to talk with me if you want to do that together. But here, Jesus personally reveals himself to these nine disciples who are hiding behind closed doors, and he speaks peace to them, and he promises that one day they will be given his spirit to empower their witness, their bold witness throughout the world, And this boldness doesn't happen immediately because a week later when he shows himself to Thomas, the doors are still locked, right? But what Jesus communicates here has in fact come to pass. These nine disciples went from fear to boldness. It is why there is a church in Northeast Ohio, not just ours, but dozens of true churches, gospel-preaching churches. In Northeast Ohio, some six thousand miles from Jerusalem, some 2,000 years later, it's because these men went from fear to boldness. They went from hiding to going. Powerful testimony. Lastly, it turned Thomas from doubt to worship. Thomas makes a very foolish commitment when he says, I will not believe without seeing for myself. Consistent eyewitness testimony of dozens of trustworthy people should have been enough for him and it should be enough for us. And yet Jesus graciously showed himself to this skeptic. He actually gives Thomas the opportunity to touch the scars. And then Jesus commands him, look at verse 27. Based on the evidence, he says, believe. And Thomas responds with immediate worship in verse 29. My Lord, Jesus, you are my God. And in verse 29, Jesus commends Thomas's faith that is based on personal examination. And he also pronounces blessing on all those of us who in future generations will believe. We will confess Jesus as our Lord and God, not on the basis of 
personal experience, but on the basis of eyewitness testimony, solid, trustworthy testimony. With that pronounced blessing, blessed are those who believe without seeing. The gospel has reached its climax, so I state the main point again. You are forever blessed if even though you've never personally seen Jesus alive after his crucifixion, you commit your life to him as your Lord and God. We're now ready for the last two verses. To commit your life to Jesus as your Lord and God, you not only need to trust the testimony, testimony of those who were eyewitnesses of his resurrection, but you need to personally believe. You need to make the choice to believe. From the mountaintop of evidence, John in verse 30 says, I could have given more evidence, but this is sufficient evidence to draw the conclusion. That is verse 31. I've given you enough information that you personally can believe that Jesus is God's chosen king, crucified, risen, and returning to reign forever over his kingdom on this planet. He will be king of kings. I've given you enough information to draw that conclusion in order that you might commit your life to him. That term believe I have in quotation marks because it's critical. Sometimes the term believe in English is very weak. We believe a fact like George Washington was our first president. We believe it. It doesn't really change our lives. We just know it to be true. We believe it. I've talked with many people and they use believe in that same sense. I believe God. I believe Jesus died for sins and rose again. But this word believe is stronger. John is not simply wanting us to believe a fact. He's wanting us to place our confidence in a person. To rely on Jesus. You should believe facts like George Washington was our first president. But you shouldn't believe George Washington like John means believe. You shouldn't entrust your life to George Washington, commit your life to him. No, that would be foolish. But with Jesus, you should not only believe facts about Jesus, you should commit your life, rely on Jesus, place your confidence in him. That's what this whole news report has been driving at. John writes not simply that we would believe facts, but that we would decisively commit our lives to Jesus and confess Jesus as our Lord and God. If you've never done that, I urge you decisively, personally, commit your life to the risen King Jesus who will rule forever as King of Kings on this planet. Turn from your waywardness. Turn from choosing for yourself what's right and wrong and say, Jesus, you're my only hope of being forgiven. You're my only hope of resurrection. I entrust my life to you. You must personally choose to believe Jesus as your Lord and God. And believers, keep persevering in faith. I want to conclude by asking a question that may bug you. It may bug you whether you are a believer or whether you're not a Christian. John, this writer, describes the critical importance of believing without 
seeing, believing without seeing. Stated differently, believing eyewitness testimony without personally being an eyewitness. He says it's critically important to believe without seeing. Another apostle talked about a similar challenge. Paul talked about the challenge of walking by faith and not by sight. He means the exact same thing. We walk by faith and not by sight, and that makes life very challenging. The question that I want to conclude with is this. Is it possible to have a life-changing relationship with someone you've never seen? Someone you've never met? Many unbelievers ask this question skeptically. What do you mean you actually have a relationship with Jesus? I mean, are you just talking to yourself? Many believers ask this question in frustration. You may have been a Christian for 10 years and you just say, I wish that I could just see him. Because this relationship, this long-distance relationship is really hard. I get it. Do you know that seeing someone is really not a necessary part of a relationship? These kinds of relationships, I just use the word long-distance relationships, they are challenging. They are not impossible. I would just say personally, some of my strongest and closest friends are people that I have seen maybe two or three times over the last decade. And I think many of you know that you can work side by side with someone. You can talk with them all day. You can send emails back and forth. You could see them constantly and not have a relationship with them. It's very possible, right? It's because what really matters in a relationship is self-disclosure. If you communicate with someone else who you are, that's what's critical. And that can happen. Self-disclosure can happen whether you're in someone's presence or not. And the clearest example of this is the power of letter writing. There's a great article that was written a few years ago called Falling in Love Through Writing, written by Aaron Ben-Zeev. And he wrote, It is often easier to describe your heart in writing while you're alone than it is when you're talking about your feeling in front of another person. Indeed, self-disclosure in the initial stages of a relationship is often greater in letters than in person. Moreover, unlike phone calls, letters can be reread again and again and thereby enhance personal responses. There are some advantages in, in writing-based relationships during the initial stages. However, such a relationship cannot replace a personal relationship, although it can complement it. And I heartily agree. Letter writing cannot totally replace face-to-face -face relationship. And this is completely consistent with what we Christians believe, that our relationship with Jesus right now is only in its earliest phase. We will soon be with him face-to-face. -face. It will not be written communication forever. I want to illustrate the power of letter-writing relationships 
One of the most famous in history came to light in the past 20 years. It was the relationship that developed between Bessie Moore and Chris Barker. She worked in the British Post Office, and he was a signalman who was stationed in North Africa during World War II. They had apparently crossed paths at one point in the post office, but he never remembered the encounter. He didn't even remember what she looked like until she eventually sent pictures, and he thought, yeah, I think I did cross paths with her in the post office. She broke up with a friend of his, and Chris and Bessie ended up in contact. And throughout the course of the war, they wrote over 500 letters to each other. These are letters that were published in a 2015 book called My Dear Bessie, a love story in letters. Actually, in the few years that uh, followed the publication of the book, a few British actors, including Benedict Cumberbatch and Louise Brealey, went on tour reading the letters in simple two-person recitations. They read the letters to packed houses. It's a beautiful story. In one of Chris's letters to Bessie, he wrote, I think that I'll now start to tell you something of myself and my family. I think this is necessary because I want to marry you very soon after I return to England, and I want us to do most of the talking through the medium of our letters. I hope that you too will give me an abridged something so that when we do wonderfully finally meet, we shall know more about each other than could have been obtained by a contemporary correspondence. That means talking face to face. Chris and Bessie married after the war. They were married for 58 years. And on Chris's deathbed, he gave a box to his son that contained the letters. Chris actually only kept some of Bessie's letters because he had thrown out quite a few in North Africa because it made his backpack lighter. And also, he didn't want any evidence of some of her more intimate self-disclosures. Chris asked that his son Bernard not open the box until after he died, and then Bernard did. And after his dad passed in 2007, he read the letters, and he said, I got to know my parents much better through reading their relationship. You see, Chris and Bessie developed a close personal relationship, so close they knew they wanted to get married. It was the closest of human relationships through personal written communication even though they had never seen each other. You see, a person's self-disclosure, revealing himself, can happen in writing. It can happen through words. You don't need to see the person's face. You can read what they've written about themselves. Even though, for a full personal relationship to be enjoyed, as God intended relationships, it must give way eventually to face-to-face -face contact, face-to-face -face enjoyment. For every Christian who has read and treasured the written communication in the word and has responded to that written communication with our own communication, verbalizing to the Lord Jesus, my Lord and my God, our relationship, our personal relationship has begun. 
So it's not only possible to have a relationship with someone you've never met. It's not only possible to love someone deeply you've never seen. It is absolutely necessary if you want forgiveness of your sin and eternal life, resurrected life in the kingdom. It is necessary for you to engage in a relationship with someone you've never seen. According to the climax of John 20, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. Let's pray.